Welcome to the Traveling Image Makers Podcast, your source of inspiration about travel photography. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride as we bring you on a tour around the world with our guests. Hi everyone, this is episode 95 of the Traveling Image Makers podcast with your host, Ugoche. This week I'm interviewing a photographer that I've known and followed for a few years, Mark Silber, who is not just a great photographer, he's also an awesome educator, and who has just published a new book, Advance Your Photography. And we are going to talk with Mark about the book and about his story, his photography, his travels and uh, how we got to meet Ansel Adams' son, and many other interesting stories. I would just like to uh, give a little correction to what was said during our conversation. Uh, We are trying to remember who said one should not only photograph things for what they are, but for what else they are. So we misattributed it to Edward Weston, and then we found out that it was actually Minor White who said so. Uh, Unfortunately, Ralph could not be with us this week. He is currently uh, traveling. Uh, He will be back next week uh, with another interview. You will be able to find all the links about this episode at ttim.photo forward slash 95. And as for me, Ugo Che, you can find everything about me at my website ucphoto.me. Ralph Velasco uh, can be found at his website ralphvelasco.com or photoenrichment.com. And now let's listen to my interview with Mark Silber. Enjoy. Hi, Mark. How are you doing? Ugo, I'm doing great and it's my pleasure to join you today. Uh, it's my pleasure and, uh, and an honor. I've uh, been following, as I said, your career for, for quite some time. Um, can you maybe... Uh, tell, tell us a bit how a, a little bit more about you. Uh, who is Mark Silber? How did you get started with photography? Okay. Well, I have been a photographer almost my whole life. I actually, like many children in uh, the 50s and 60s, I used to shoot with a Kodak brownie camera. And, you know, you would take your roll of film to the drugstore and it would come back. And it was always disappointing. It was always something different than what I thought it was going to look like. And in the seventh grade, uh, my teacher said, hey, how would you like to see how a darkroom works? And I said, yeah, sure, that sounds kind of interesting. So he showed me, you know, developing a roll of film, and that that was interesting. But when we put it into the enlarger and made a print, And I could see in the developing tray this print coming out. All of a sudden, the magic just unfolded for me. And I realized that I didn't have to accept those really badly printed, you know, drugstore prints. I could make my own. I could change the contrast. I could change the size. And all of a sudden, I was hooked. And that's when I became a photographer. Seventh grade. Do you still uh, get the same feelings when you shoot digital? I mean, you just the image will immediately appear. You're losing a bit of that uh, magic of the image appearing slowly. <laughs> Not exactly, because, you know, you, you can look at it. But I do notice that there's a, 
there's still the magic when I get back to the studio and I start developing it. Then all of a sudden, you know, what was in the back of the camera, which might have appeared so-so, all of a sudden I realize, okay, you know, I can bring the clouds out or I can change, you know, the clarity of the contrast or whatever it is I'm, I'm trying to achieve. All of a sudden that can make the photograph pop. Probably the biggest and most dramatic for me is still shooting black and white uh, digitally because many times I'll find, you know, it depends. If I see there's important color in an image and there's some reason why I want to see it in color, of course, I'll leave it as a color image. But many times there is no real reason, so I'll turn it into a black and white, and I still feel that same sort of magic. Of you know, all of a sudden there's that image. Do you shoot a DSLR these days or mirrorless? Well, mostly a DSLR. Uh, I've been shooting with a Canon 5D Mark III for years because I, I also use it to shoot video with. Uh, but I have shot with the Sony A7, which is a great camera. It's uh, very small, which is something I really like. You know, the Canon is a pretty big. Yeah piece of machinery to carry around the, the reason i was asking because many people who shoot black and white would just set the camera to, to black and white mode so even with a with a camera like the sony that only has an electronic viewfinder you see yeah. black and white through the viewfinder you see what the the image will will look like do you do the same or you turn you use it in a normal default I just, color vision and then uh, Yeah, I just leave it default because, again, sometimes I might shoot black and white. Sometimes I might shoot color. I will often, if I go out on a trip, I'll be shooting between stills and motion back and forth. Yeah. And just kind of like when I get back, then I'll edit them together. So I don't do that. But it's not a bad idea. I could see doing that. I think another exercise that would be good because, you know, in the film days, you had in a roll of film – 36 exposure or if it was 120 you had 12 exposures or if you're shooting a large format you had one or two exposures so that put you in the mindset of being i won't say cautious but you really before you press the shutter you really made sure this is worthy of your film yeah. because not not only did you have those limited number of exposures but you knew that Going back, you had to develop those and print them. So there's no point in throwing away images, you know. I still feel that, that one of the drawbacks of digital photography is losing that mindset because, you know, a thousand snapshots don't make one good photograph. No. You, you still have to follow the rules of, uh, like, visualization, which we can talk about. And carefully, not so much carefully, but... But using your own mind first, visualize the photograph before you press the shutter. Before we, we started the recording here, we were chatting and you told me that you live in Carmel, California. And, yes. Which is very close to where great photographers like Ansel Adams and Edward Weston used to live. That's so right. Did you... Did you get some inspiration from the place, like the spirit of the place that makes so many great I, photographers uh, grow there or attract them to that place? The water and the fog and the ocean all combine to make a, a really wonderful artistic uh, melting pot. But I've been coming here since I was a little kid. 
we uh, I lived only about an hour and a half from here. So my family would, would uh, come here quite often, and in school I would come here. So I lived here in the 70s as well. And uh, I moved back to Silicon Valley and finally decided, okay, it's time to move back to Carmel. And I do believe that there is something about the environment here that's very conducive to writing and art. There's a quietness and a calmness, and the beauty of the surroundings is a constant inspiration. And it doesn't hurt that so many greats have also lived here before. There is something, you know, that brings that into the environment. I suppose it's like it's like being in Milan. You know, you have all those wonderful designers. There must be some inspiration that sort of floats through the air, right? Yeah, probably. Um I don't remember many photos by Ansel Adams from the coast. I mean, everybody remembers his photos from the Sierras and the deserts yeah. and so on. I don't, uh, do you think that he didn't use to, to shoot a lot on the coast or did he? You know, I asked his son that question because I had that same thought. There's only a few photographs that you see of the coast. And his son, Michael, said he didn't want to encroach on Edward Weston's area because edward had pretty much you know claimed the that coastline as as an area that he did a lot of photographing whereas ansel you're right was mainly in the mountains so that was michael's answer i don't know i don't know much more about it than that but i believe that's true that edward was his friend and he kind of wanted to leave that to his domain uh, that, that's interesting because it's a uh kind of attitude that nowadays is, is unthinkable, I mean, right? I know, isn't uh, it? You, you cannot claim a location, especially, especially a location as beautiful, as famous, like the coast of Northern California as yours. You cannot claim Iceland as yours. There's millions oh, sure. of photographers that go there every year, so it's a very different uh, approach. Well, I think also it's just, you know, it's it shows the number of photographs being taken yeah. has increased so many fold. You know, I, I know an interesting statistic. I don't know what it was in Ansel's day, but at the the peak of film, which was the year 2000, there were 85 billion photographs taken with film. This year they estimate there will be 1.2 trillion photographs taken hmm. that's an enormous increase you know in just 17 years so what we have is so many more photographers pretty much taking photographs in the same area there's so much competition for that same photograph but in the days of ansel adams and edward wesson there just weren't that many and it was much more difficult to become a great photographer because you really had to know your camera and your darkroom skills and not that you don't today but they're easier today than they were back then yeah do you have an advice for for people who want to to travel and go i mean i mentioned iceland could have been patagonia or Morocco, sure and take photos that stand out from the rest that are not uh, yet again the same photo that everybody else takes not cliche photographs. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's that's always the challenge when you go to a place like Yosemite, for instance, or you shoot a, a photograph of the Eiffel Tower, or you're right, you go to Morocco. My advice, and that's always my challenge, 
is, you know, you can always look at what those photographs are. Somebody I spoke with recently said they look at the postcards of that area and they make sure they don't shoot those mm-hmm. photographs. That's kind of tells them what not to shoot. <laughs> right. Right. But, but then you have the challenge. You want to come back with a photograph of the Eiffel Tower. So, so how do you do that? And I have a photograph in my book. It's an angle shooting up, and it's black and white, which just gives a different view of that iconic image. And one of the things I talk about in my book is use different angles. Don't just shoot, you know, we walk around at eye level as tourists, and if you shoot at eye level – you're probably going to come away with a fairly boring photograph. Let's just face it. One of the reasons for that is interesting because if people are already seeing things at eye level, it doesn't really stand out. But if you crouch down low or you get up high or you turn your camera at an angle, all of a sudden you're showing a view of something from a different point of view than the person would normally see it. I think that's you know, the key is you have to find your own way of looking at it. Edward Weston said, composition is merely the strongest way of seeing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that means from your point of view, how can I make this a strong image? How can I strengthen it? How can I make it stand out in some way? And there's no formula for that. That's something that each photographer has to figure out. Uh was it Weston that said that if you want to take a photograph of something, do not make it about the thing that you're photographing, but is it about the th- well about some make it about something else? I think maybe yes, I'm paraphrasing, but I actually have that 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 quote in my book. It's oh, cool. it's uh, and I'll see if I can pull it out because I I hate to misquote these guys, but <laughs> yeah, I was just quoting from memory. <laughs> I know. I'd, I'd rather – let me see if I can find that. Um, but, yes, he definitely made that a point of saying it's about what the photograph is and what else it is, yeah. as I recall, is pretty close to what the quote is. So what else is it? Here's an example of his own work, and he was constantly doing this. He would take an everyday object like a pepper. There's this famous photograph called Pepper Number 30 where he took a picture of a regular green pepper that we all use in our cooking and salads, but he made it so beautiful. So he took a photograph of the pepper, but what else is it? It's this beautiful set of flowing lines. And even perhaps more classic than that is his photograph that he took in Mexico of a toilet. I mean, who photographs a toilet? Mm -hmm. But he found this beautiful curving You know, old-fashioned, of course, it was modern in that time. But it had the beautiful curves, and he basically showed us that everyday objects can be just as beautiful as these sort of iconic things like Half Dome or, or, you know, a beautiful bridge or whatever. And again, that's that's part of the, the technique of anyone doing composition is find that little extra twist. What's that extra... That will bring out, you know, the beautiful image. So we basically came around to to talking about your book, which was uh, uh, one of the the things I wanted to to ask you about. Can you tell us a bit about about the book? What's the title? What's it about? 
the book is called Advancing Your Photography, and uh, that has been the title of my ongoing video series that, that uh, has been going on since 2008. In the series, I've been interviewing photographers to find out and ask them, how do you do this? How do you do that? How do you approach composition? How do you approach lighting? What's your general approach to the subject of photography? So I've conducted over a thousand hours of interviews. With all that information, you know, in my head, I decided actually some time ago that I should write a book. Videos are great because you do see the person and you can see their images and that's wonderful. But it's important to have a book that you can carry around with you, a handbook. And I made it the size that you can put in your camera case. So the idea isn't that you leave it on your shelf gathering dust, take it with you, pull it out and use it. My other thought was, you know, I looked over the kind of the range of different photography books that are available, and most of them cover one aspect of photography or another. You know, they'll cover the camera, or they'll cover composition or processing. But I wanted to put all those subjects together in one handbook. And that's, that was the inspiration behind it. Who is your ideal reader? Who did you write the book for? Basically. Yeah, you go. I, I try to span. Okay, my ideal reader is this is the person who all of a sudden says, you know, I really do want to learn photography. I have been shooting and maybe I'm not totally satisfied with my results. I really don't know how the camera works. I really do want to dig into this thing. That's kind of that person who, where the spark goes off and they say, I want to become a photographer. I would say that is my ideal reader. Uh, they're not a total beginner. They're probably not going to be reading it if they're pros. I didn't write the book for a pro. I purposefully kept the book clean and simple, well-defined with lots of illustrations so that anyone picking it up could read it and really understand the tools and techniques that I was talking about. The central concept of the book, if I may say so, is the, what you call the cycle of photography. Can That's you right. explain what is the cycle of photography? What are the parts of the cycle? You know, this was something that had been kind of uh, in my mind for a long time. I was trying to figure out how do I, how do I illustrate photography as a whole unit? Because you can look at it in these sort of desperate parts where each piece doesn't seem to necessarily add up to the next. But then I looked at it one day and I realized it is a cycle. And a cycle means something that has a beginning, middle, and an end to it. Just like you turn on your dishwasher, you know, first it rinses, then it soaps it, and then it rinses it again, and then it dries it. That's a cycle. In photography, the cycle of photography actually begins with what we mentioned a moment ago, visualization. And visualization is a concept that goes way, way back for artists. It goes back to Leonardo da Vinci. I'm sure much further than that. But Leonardo threw sponges at the wall to visualize a painting of clouds. You know, that's probably one of the first recorded points of visualization. Um, and then more recently, the great photographers that we were speaking of a moment ago, uh, Weston, Adams, Minor White, definitely 
said, you must visualize the photograph before you press the shutter. Now, there was a mechanical reason why they had to do that. You, in those days, they were shooting with large format cameras primarily. You couldn't look in the back of the camera and see what the image was going to look like. You had only so many exposures, and you didn't want to waste them. So you wanted to, first of all, use your mind to position the camera, to decide what kind of exposure you wanted, to decide what you wanted in the frame and what you didn't want in the frame. And that put the whole mindset to being, first and foremost, a photographer, not a camera technician. And there is a big difference. A photographer is the person behind the camera that operates it. A technician is just somebody pressing a shutter and turning dials and that sort of thing. And it's very important not to be a camera technician, but to be a photographer. William Shakespeare, to be or not to be, that is the question. And fundamentally, you have to decide to be a photographer and to put yourself in that location where you can capture that photograph. That's really what visualization means. It drives the rest of the cycle of photography because from that first moment of deciding what you want to capture, then you move into the next phase, which is equipment. You do need to know your equipment inside and out. The thing you don't want to have happen is have your equipment get in the way of the photograph. My One of my famous, my, my great photographers that I love is Henri Cartier-Bresson, who was the master of capturing the moment, the decisive moment. And he used a small Leica. He didn't use a large format camera. He used a small Leica that he could hold in his hand very discreetly, go into an area, take photographs, walk away without anybody even noticing him. But he still had to visualize that photograph. He had to look out and see something that attracted his eye, move in, know when to press the shutter just at the right moment. You know, in the case of that wonderful photograph, he has a man jumping over a mud puddle. The man is flying over the mud puddle, but a second later, boom, he lands in the water. A second earlier, he would just be standing. So Cartier-Bresson was able to, to visualize where he wanted to capture that photograph. And he had to decide to press the shutter before the man reached that point. So that's the next thing is knowing your equipment so well that you can get the photograph that you want. Then you get into the third phase which is capturing the image, and that's composition, all the various tools, not rules, tools of composition. Uh, you know, there's, for instance, the, what's been referred to as a rule of thirds. It's not a rule, it's a tool. You can choose to use that or not to make an appealing photograph. Sometimes it looks better to have your subject right smack in the middle of the frame, not off to the side. Again, that's a tool. And then the, the fourth phase of the cycle of photography is processing. So, you know, we use Lightroom and Photoshop and perhaps even different filters to process the image so it, it comes out the way you envisioned it. And the final stage is sharing, which means getting your work out to the world. And that can be through putting it in a book, putting it on your wall, sharing it on Instagram, 
whatever it is, get your work out there so it's seen by others. And that's the cycle of photography. You, you were saying that visualization maybe started with Leonardo, but I was actually thinking that I was reminding of uh, the paintings in the caves of uh, Lescaux in France, or Neolithic yes. paintings from 15,000 years ago or something like that. And, yes. Uh, if you if you don't know them well, it's easy to think that those people were primitive. But if you look at the techniques they use, they use techniques that uh, it was it's obvious that they were thinking in three D. They were using techniques to show the three dimensional nature of the animals they were painting. They were very sophisticated painters. Yes, which is incredible for fifteen thousand years ago. They was definitely employing visualization and thinking. I want that. The animal and the legs of the animal to show like the to to show Motion. like they are in two different planes. Yeah. When I discovered that, I was amazed. I mean, it's uh, it's incredible. You're right. You know, the human spirit loves to tell stories. I think that's the the nature of man. We like to tell stories about what we saw. Animals really can't do that. You know, I have a very smart golden retriever, and she will talk to me. You know, if it's time for us to take a walk, she'll talk to me. But she has no way of, of conveying that in a picture form. And what sets us apart from, from any other life form is that we have the, the means of, of spiritually and mentally, first of all, envisioning what we want to say. And then, as you said, in the, in the caves... They thought through, you're right, they thought through, how do I convey this picture of, of that depth, you know? And yeah. so they use those techniques. It's pretty amazing. It is. But that's the power of visualization. Okay. Completely different topic. You said that you, I mean, if I understand correctly, you were not a professional photographer all your life, right? That's right. So when did you start? When did you become pro? Uh, you know, it's funny, Ugo, I went to art school, I studied photography, and then I had a, a major career change. I went off in a completely different direction and ended up building a management consulting company in Silicon Valley. And in the early 2000s, the company was doing very well. I had this longing, you know, it was pulling on my heartstrings to go back to photography. And by then, the digital world was really starting to emerge. You know, those were the early days of digital photography. There were cameras, but they weren't really great cameras yet. Yeah. Photoshop was in its early stages. But I decided in 2004, okay, I sold the company to my partners, and I said, I'm going to become a professional photographer in the, in the digital age. So, so that's precisely when yeah. I did that. So the, the reason I was asking this is because I wanted to ask you, what, what, do you, what would the Mark Silber of today tell to the Mark Silber of when you were like uh, 20 or 20-something and you decided to go into that career, or to the Mark Silber of 13 years ago who decided to sell his company? What, with your, the wisdom you have acquired, what you do tell to your best self. Wow, that's that's a that's a good one. Well, you know, it's funny. I have grown to really love uh, video and filmmaking, 
And I probably would have said to myself, get into this right now, because uh, video and filmmaking was actually being developed during those time periods. And it would have been really interesting to um, acquire those skills much earlier. I had to play catch up because I knew nothing about video until about 2008. So I had to train myself. And I think I would have said, Mark, you're going to really like this as a career, in addition to still photography, dive into it early. And, uh, you know, I, it's different for everybody. Maybe to somebody else, it would be a different message, but that would be the message I would tell myself. Cool. Can you tell the story of how you got to know uh, Ansel Adams' son? Yeah, uh, when I started my video series, we were, we were being sponsored. Uh, we had the good fortune of a, a tremendous sponsorship from SanDisk. And I wanted to sketch out who am I going to open this show with? How am I going to get this thing started to get people's attention? So I wrote down on a piece of paper those photographers that I wanted to somehow include. And the top of the list was Ansel Adams. The next one on the list was Annie Leibovitz, because those are the two biggest names. If you ask the average person on the street, name five photographers, they're probably going to give you Ansel Adams and Annie Leibovitz in the list. And then from there, it just they probably will look at you with a blank stare after that, the average person. Um, so oddly enough, I actually did go to school with Annie Leibovitz at the San Francisco Art Institute. And my very first video shoot was with her uh, opening her exhibit in San Francisco, where she was walking through the exhibit and talking about her photographs. So we actually captured that. And then about the same time, I, I just started reaching out to the Ansel Adams Gallery, and I uh, started an email conversation with Ansel's grandson, who runs the gallery, who then introduced me to his son. And after, you know, various emails going back and forth, his son invited us to go to Yosemite and shoot an episode up there, which was our very first uh, episode, uh, Glacier Point in Yosemite. And then after that, he invited us to come to his house and shoot the darkroom. So I felt I was very fortunate in having that opportunity. It was for me, amazing because Ansel had been a you know major kind of hero for me growing up as a photographer. Yeah, I remember seeing that video. We'll put the link in the show notes, and uh, there's some sequences of Ansel himself uh, developing and printing in yeah. uh, in his dark room. Really uh, instructive. I mean, really eye opening to the method of uh, of a great photographer. Um, Okay, so what else? And just as a, a note there, I'm just a kind of an interesting contrast. So tomorrow I'm going to be filming at Edward Weston's house in his darkroom. Now, Edward was the exact opposite. He didn't even use an enlarger. He developed his 8x10s and then made only contact prints out of them. In his darkroom, there is no enlarger. So there's no special techniques. It's all done in the camera. Everything he did was really based on getting an exposure that he wanted, 
I don't think he, I'll find out tomorrow, I'll ask about if there was any technique to his developing, but I don't think so. As opposed to Ansel, who became very elaborate at dodging and burning and doing various things. So it just shows you how different artists are going to approach the subject very differently. It would be really hard to, to tell from the outside. I know. Part, it's part amazing. Of the, part of the process, part of how you make sausages. And <laughs> exactly. Most, it's the sausage most people, making. Most people don't see it. And, uh, it's, it's great that you that you show those also those aspects that might, might not be interesting for people who are not into photography. I mean, if I want to just the normal people who just want to buy a print or a book by those and that might not be interested in how those photographs were made, but we yeah. we are. It's 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 good that we are we, also interested I think, in the process. I think that's a uh, really important trait as a photographer is to be curious yeah. and uh, uh, really want to know what's going on. Speaking of curiosity, do you have any travels coming up? Any places you have not seen that you would like to see? Italy. I want to see much more of Italy. I really want to come to your country and travel it from one end to the other. So that's definitely coming up. I don't have it on the calendar yet, but it will definitely be occurring. Uh, I've been to South Africa, but not East and North and West Africa, although I have been to Morocco, and that's phenomenal. Morocco is uh, just, uh, for a photographer, is just got one place after another that's just strong images. But I would say definitely, uh, and I'm not just saying this for you and your audience, mm -hmm. but Italy is definitely a, a point of a destination that we have to get to soon. You're welcome to come anytime. And let me know. We will go out. I will for sure. Show you some off-the-beaten-path locations. <laughs> I love it. So... That's that's been a great conversation. Uh, really appreciated your uh, your insights into photography. Is there anything else you would like to to add before we wrap this episode up? My you know my best advice is for a photographer who wants to advance. And by the way, the reason I called the show "Advancing Your Photography" is because that's a continuous process of advancing. I think we've never. We never get to a point where we've arrived. We're always learning something. There's always something more to find out. So that's why I called it Advancing Your Photography and why I called the book Advancing Your Photography because I really uh, put in the book those things that I believe will help a photographer take their craft to the next level and continue on an upward advancement. Once they've digested it and they really have everything out of it, uh, I'll be writing volume two for them. And by the way, one of the features of the book is I created a, a page on my website, a resource page that goes along with the book by chapter and page. So for instance, whenever I mention a certain photographer or an interview with that photographer, you can find the actual video interview right there on that page. Or if I mention some quote, I show you where you can find that in a book. And in some cases, I mention certain um, 
offers like a, a lab that I use, Bay Photo Lab, and I mentioned, you know, if you click on this link, they'll give you a discount. So it's a resource page that kind of adds a whole new dimension to the book. So you can take what's written and you can also watch it at the same time. But I would say get a copy of the book and use it. Uh, hashtag your photographs, AYP Club on Instagram so I can see them because I actually do go through those photographs and comment and like and I'm trying to get our whole community to do the same thing so that you get the feedback that you want. And where can people find more about you, your videos and your book? My so on YouTube you can search for Mark Silber. It's M A R C S I L B E R and I'm sure you're you'll have the link up there. That's YouTube. Uh, my website is Silber Studios Dot com and that's where you can find my blog and links to everything else I've got in terms of uh, Instagram and Facebook and that sort of thing. Great, and as you said, we will definitely put links to all of those things in the in the blog post that goes with the, with this episode. Fantastic. And, uh, yeah, uh, again, it's been a great pleasure to talking to you today and I hope we can do the same again maybe when you publish the second edition of your book or possibly earlier <laughs> absolutely I look forward to it Hugo okay. thank you take care and bye okay take care <laughs>